Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The story of a leaky oil tanker stranded off the coast of Yemen is, in part, the story of the country's civil war. There are about a million gallons of oil stored in this tanker, which has not been operational since 2015. That is when Yemen's civil war escalated into an international conflict, pitting Houthi rebels who overthrew the government against an international coalition led by Saudi Arabia. Since then, the condition of this old oil tanker has deteriorated and is threatening to cause what would be the world's worst ever oil spill. Immense environmental, economic, and humanitarian damage would be inflicted throughout the Red Sea. Meanwhile, the Houthi rebels who control access to this tanker have not yet permitted UN experts or an international team to inspect the tanker, nor have they taken steps to safely remove the oil from it. The situation is, in short, a major disaster waiting to happen. On the line to discuss is Jerry Simpson, Associate Crisis and Conflict Director at Human Rights Watch. He has been following the situation with the tanker closely, and we kick off discussing the history of the tanker before having a broader conversation about the possible damage that a leak may inflict and its broader relationship to the conflict in Yemen. The situation with this tanker is something that has been on the radar of the UN Security Council and even US Congress. The damage from an oil spill would simply be at a scale that is hard to comprehend. Yet, so far, there has been very little progress in securing the oil from this tanker. This is one of those stories, I think, where sufficient international attention will only come uh, after the disaster happens, which is you know, unfortunate because now is, of course, the opportunity to prevent this massive disaster from unfolding. In any case, I'm glad to bring this episode to you. As always, please feel free to reach out to me if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover, or if there's anything else on your mind. I love hearing from you. You can reach me using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And the bonus episode that I am posting this week for premium subscribers to the podcast is my conversation with Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield. She grew up the oldest of eight children in a small segregated town outside of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. They were poor. Her father was not literate. Yet despite these circumstances, she became one of America's top diplomats, serving as U.S. ambassador to Liberia and then as assistant secretary of state for African affairs. It was a great conversation. She has a great life story, and she tells me how she coined a new practice of diplomacy she called gumbo diplomacy. I think you'll appreciate it. To become a premium subscriber, just go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the link, or I'll post a link in the show notes of this episode. Thank you. 
And now a word from World Vision, which has a new podcast. If you're interested in hearing more about topical global issues, check out Rising to Respond, a podcast that gives you a behind-the-scenes look at what it takes for humanitarians to fight COVID-19 around the world. It's brought to you by World Vision, and they are covering stories you're not seeing in the news. Hear from global leaders, frontline workers, and children about the realities they're facing during this global pandemic. You can find Rising to Respond on your favorite podcast player or visit wvi.org slash rising to respond. And now here is my conversation with Jerry Simpson of Human Rights Watch. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, so in fact, this tanker has been moored off the coast of Yemen, just five kilometers, in fact, as the crow flies, five miles, sorry, as the crow flies, uh, since 1988. And a 430-kilometer pipeline runs from eastern Yemen all the way through to the tanker, bringing in, you know, all the oil that was extracted in eastern Yemen. Um, It was then stored on the tanker for, you know, days or weeks at a time, and then other ships came um, moored off the tanker, offloaded the oil, and then exported it around the world. So that was the case from 1988 until 2015. And who owns this tanker? Well, this tanker was um, purchased by the um, Safer Exploration and Production Operations Company, which is a Yemeni state-run company, SEPOC for short. Uh, and the tanker is uh, named after that company, either pronounced Safer or Safar, depending on your preference. And they owned the tanker and theoretically still do. Um, but the Houthis who took over that part of Yemen where the tanker is moored, um, then effectively took control of it since 2015. Uh, so I think it might be useful at this point to very briefly, you know, explain the Houthis and the Yemen conflict. I've done entire episodes on uh, the Yemen conflict, so I know it's a long and complicated issue. Uh, but just for the purposes of this conversation, can you explain to listeners who are the Houthis? How did they fit into the Yemen civil war? And uh, what happened in 2015 to uh, to change control of this tanker? Well, the Houthis have uh, been in northern Yemen for a very long time. And in fact, I was in Yemen in 2008 when they were a very small group of rebels um, who were taking control over parts of the very far north of the country. Um, but in 2014, they managed to take control of the capital, Sana'a, and uh, quickly sort of spread their control throughout the whole of Western Yemen, as it, as you, as it is geographically, but as it's politically known, Northern Yemen. Um, the uh, Houthis are Shia Muslims and uh, have received some support from Iran. And the Sa- Saudi Arabia has for a long time, well before they took power, been very unhappy about the Houthis' presence in northern Yemen on the Saudi border. And so when the Houthis took over 
in 2014, the Saudis quickly put together a coalition of various countries uh, backed by the United States, the United Kingdom, France, Canada, amongst other countries, to try and get rid of the Houthis. And they've been trying ever since to no avail. So the Houthi rebellion as part of their offensive took over the port of Hodeida, which is a, a major port, right? That's right. So Hodeida is the largest port um, through which imports are brought into Yemen. And uh, for many years now, in fact, even before the 2015 uh, war broke out, Yemen depended on imports for 80 to 90% of its essential goods. Uh, and with the growing humanitarian crisis in the country, it's become an absolutely essential lifeline to keep aid flowing into the country. Um, so Hodeida is, is strategically very important. The port is 30 miles um, from the location of the tanker, which makes any accident involving the tanker, you know, potentially catastrophic. Uh, because presumably the oil spill could potentially block access to this major port that all this food is imported through. That's one of the main concerns that the UN has. That's right. So the port would have to be shut down because oil would cover the entire coastline, making it impossible for ships to dock. So, so basically, I, and I want to ask you about the potential environmental and economic and humanitarian consequences of a massive oil spill. Um, but before we get there, can you just explain, so from 2015 till today, um, there's been basically no oil coming in and out or, uh, of this tanker, and it's just basically stuck, right? That's correct. And in fact, the reason for that is that um, in 2014, the United Nations Security Council imposed targeted sanctions on certain senior Houthi officials. And because the tanker is controlled by the Houthis and any profits from that oil would inevitably reach the specific individual's in the Houthi uh, hierarchy that have been placed under sanctions, um, it has been prohibited for anyone to buy this oil from the uh, Houthis for fear of breaching the sanctions. And so basically, we're left with this situation over the last five years where you have this very old tanker uh, storing, what, like a million barrels of oil? Um, but if, like, what does that mean? Like a million barrels of oil? Like what, what's like a reference point? <laughs> it's hard to imagine, right? Um, sure the most famous, uh, uh, oil spill, um, that most people may have heard of is the Exxon Valdez disaster in 1989, um, which spilled about 250,000 barrels of oil and caused, you know, massive catastrophic environmental harm. So in the worst case scenario, if the tanker breaks up, due to flooding, or if there's an explosion um, causing all or most of the oil to spill, um, the uh, the effect would be something that we've never seen before in the history of oil spills. So it would be uh, absolutely catastrophic. So, so what are some of those potential effects? And I, I was really interested to see last week that the United Nations Environment Program, uh, UNEP, briefed the Security Council on the potential environmental consequences of an oil spill. It's kind of rare for UNEP to brief the Security Council, uh, but they did on on this matter because the environmental damage could be so profound. Right. So the Security Council has actually been briefed 15 times in the last 15 months on this issue. Um, the, the, U, the UN is just completely beside itself in terms of trying to get the Houthis to change their position here. And in late May this year, oil entered the uh, engine uh, room of the tanker, causing you know uh, 
concern and a temporary fix, but one that is unlikely to last. And so the UN Environment Programme was asked to sort of update its assessment of what would happen if there were to be renewed flooding in the engine compartment or you know uh, a breakup of the boat. And so the uh, head of the agency outlined um, a wide range of effects. And you know, for those listeners who have got time, it, I'd encourage them to go and look at the speech. It was issued on the 15th of July, so uh, can, can easily be found online. And it talks about decades-long destruction of local ecosystems um, that support the region's unique biodiversity and fisheries industry. Uh, that, that industry in turn supports almost 30, uh, sorry, the, the, the region generally, including the fishing industry, supports about 30 million people's livelihoods. Um, and those include 125,000 Yemeni fishermen who support almost 2 million people in Yemen who are already heavily dependent on humanitarian aid. So if you had a spill that destroyed both the fishing industry and the access to aid through the Hodeida port, you know, those people would immediately be cut off from their, their, their lifeline. Um, the UN also estimated that the fishing industry would suffer a $1.5 billion loss over 25 years, so affecting you know, millions of people for, for, for decades to come. <clears throat> so the UN also outlined further harms that included potential um, air pollutants affecting 8 million people, the destruction of 500 square kilometers of agricultural land, um, the, the contamination of 8,000 water wells, um, and the list goes on and on. And Even so, like desalinization yeah. plants in the region could be affected, I read. So Saudi Arabia is the only country in the region that has desalination plants, um, but they, those would be affected immediately. That's right. So you have basically what amounts to a ticking time bomb uh, sitting in, in the Red Sea in terms of this profound environmental, economic, and humanitarian damage that can be in, inflicted should this oil tanker start leaking. Um, it's my understanding that the UN's main demand at this point is to just have like a, a team, convince the Houthis to let a team out there to assess uh, what's going on. The first step would be an assessment team. That's right. They, they might make emergency repairs, but, the, but it's only a first step, which makes it all the more um, egregious that the Houthis aren't allowing that team to go ahead. So they confirmed in late uh, May in writing that they would let it a team board but to this day so eight weeks later there still hasn't been uh final permission there's been no green light and no permits for the un staff the the the, the additional challenge is that even once even once the un has permits it's going to take another three weeks to deploy the staff after they've received those permits so uh, the, the, the the clock is ticking um on this delay well what i mean what do you suppose are the motivations of the Houthis at this point in delaying or blocking uh, the UN from making this assessment? We're entering the realm of speculation, but you know diplomats have commented on this, um, and others have as well. And there are a number of possible motives. One might be that the, you know the Houthis have been trying to sell the oil. We know that much. Um, they've been trying to get around this, you know, the effect of the sanctions. Is the um, oil even of saleable quality? It's not clear. 
um, the UN has been unable, no one's been able to access it to answer that question. So it's, it's, it's possible that it's an entirely theoretical point. Nonetheless, in, in its desperation, the UN has actually tried to find a compromise arrangement so to get around the sanctions. So the Houthis might be able to allow to, uh, might be allowed to sell the oil, but they would then have to use the proceeds to pay workers and employees at Yemen's Red Sea port, for example, who haven't received salaries for a long time. So, you know, there are all kinds of workaround compromises that have been discussed, but um, apparently it hasn't resulted in anything yet. Um, others think that the, well, the Houthis have told uh, diplomats that apparently they would consider blowing up the tanker if the Saudi-led coalition tried to take back control of Hodeida or other ports on the coast. Like a hostage uh, negotiation at this point, it sounds like. Yeah, so it it would be a card up their sleeve if there were to be a new attack. That's right. So it's, it's and it's and it's worth pointing out that this was not like a theoretical um, issue. Just a year and a half ago, the Saudis were poised to attack Hodeida, and there was a, a large international outcry against that attack, just because of the humanitarian consequences that could befall in Yemen should that port get shut down, should the the Saudis attack. But they ended up not attacking. And there ended up being some sort of international diplomatic compromise happening instead. But still, um, the, the Houthis are, are um, holding this, this tanker hostage. Houthis are very well known um, for connecting all kinds of issues that are normally, would normally not be connected. So, you know, this is a situation which requires urgent action to prevent you no know, massive loss of life, loss of uh, livelihoods, a threat to health, a humanitarian catastrophe more generally, and an, an environmental disaster. And the Houthis have no concern in using this as a negotiation tactic in relation to other negotiations they're involved in, in, in the context of the conflict. So th- this is something that that we've seen in, in on many other topics. And, you know, I guess many armed groups or states will do that. Um, so it's not unheard of. But what makes this particularly egregious is that we're not talking here about, you know, freeing certain number of hostages in, in, in return for a, 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 another step that makes strategic military sense or a prisoner exchange or any such kind of agreement. Here we're talking about holding potentially 30 million people hostage in the region in order to achieve broader military aims. And and that's where uh, it is hard to see an end in sight to this impasse. The Houthis have the upper hand. The only concern they might have is their reputation. If this were to go wrong, uh, it would there would be no question that the fault would be laid entirely, the blame would be laid entirely at their feet. Um, but the Houthis probably don't care too much about their international reputation. They are already known for um, having blocked humanitarian aid for many years. They've committed war crimes, as has the coalition. So what would be an ideal outcome to this situation? Well, there's, there's no question that there's only one outcome, which is this, uh, the, the, there's only one possible outcome that would be good, which is securing the oil. The UN has said, without doing the assessment, they're almost certain that the only way to securely remove the oil is to tow the tanker to a safe dock and remove the oil there, implying it's going to be very hard to offload the oil safely in the current location. But they still have to conduct the assessment to figure out whether that would be possible.
And so it's basically at this point, the UN negotiating with the Houthis to try to get to that end outcome. Uh, what other opportunities are there for other members of the international community to apply pressure to the Houthis to, um, towards that yeah. end? Part of the challenge is that the Houthis don't answer to very many people. So Iran, to some extent, has supported the Houthis. There's a lot of debate over the, what that extent exactly is. Um, they certainly won't take any lectures from the Saudi-led coalition and the other rich Gulf neighbors surrounding them who are all trying to, you know, kick them out of the country. So they don't have any leverage. Um, the United States and the European Union have very little, if any, leverage. Um, so it is, it, it is a, it is one of those situations in which we're dealing with an armed group that are generally impervious to outside pressure. They also have very little to lose. It's very important to remember that they were a very small rebel group, um, that only, you know, started going in about 2004, 2004, and finally 10 years later found themselves in control of vast swathes of Yemen. And so they will do whatever it takes to hold on to that. And that includes pushing back in any way possible against the Saudi uh, led attempt to oust them from the country. And if the tanker is one more way in which they can try and hold on to power, you know, they will use that. And I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Yeah. No worries. Thanks a lot, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Jerry. That was very helpful. And, you know, I just fear that the safer oil tanker will be a household name around the world. Unless, of course, something is done to prevent this tragedy from happening. And again, thank you to those of you who are premium subscribers. Enjoy that conversation with Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield. I, I really liked it. And again, if you want to become a premium subscriber, support the show, unlock bonus episodes and other rewards like access to my daily global news clips service, uh, just go to patreon.com slash global dispatches or follow the links in the description field of this podcast episode. Thanks so much. See you next time. Bye.